chrononutrition is basically the idea that it's not only what you eat that matters but when you eat too and specifically when you eat relative to the timing of your biological clocks so for example i suspect that people who have digestive issues stand to benefit a lot from time-restricted eating whether that's relatively early in the day or late in the day and giving that type of consistent time cue to the different clocks in your circadian system likely is a good thing and many of these studies of course are short-term interventions but we, we don't really know that for sure do you want to know what it is body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body needs control your mind welcome to the body mind empowerment podcast i'm your host seamland and our guest today is greg potter greg has a phd in circadian rhythms and chronobiology his research focuses on how light dark cycles affect sleep and nutrition greg welcome to the show Hey, Seem, good to be here. Yeah, how's it going? Like, uh, we last saw in the Biohacker conference in uh, Latvia a few months ago. So what's been up since that time? A few bits and pieces. Yeah, I've been keeping myself busy. But I'm very much looking forward to seeing you in London shortly for the Health Optimization Summit. Yeah, that's going to be a pretty damn awesome event. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Biohacker Summit as well. Yeah, in Helsinki in yeah. November. Where I haven't been before, so I'm pumped to go out there too. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would suggest that it's not much different from the uh, original or the standard uh, UK weather. <laughs> so November in Helsinki is pretty damn grim and uh, a lot of you know clouds. But you know, the people and the conference itself is going to be uh, worth it. Yeah, those guys always put on such great shows, so <laughs> it'll be great regardless. Yeah, that's good, but. Uh, talking about you then uh, why did you choose to uh, you know get a degree in uh, chronobiology i chose really because i'm broadly interested in how lifestyle affects health and my appreciation for sleep and circadian rhythm specifically grew over time so when i first became interested in this stuff i mostly focused on diet and exercise as i think many people do and i did an undergraduate and a master's degree in exercise science, specializing in exercise physiology. And during that time, I was mostly working with athletes too. In my free time, I was doing some personal training, some sports massage therapy, some coaching. And during my master's degree, I was looking around at PhD options and realized that sleep and circadian rhythms are very important, but I didn't know nearly as much about those as I did about exercise and diet. And so I wanted to add that string to my bow and I saw an opportunity at the University of Leeds to study the interactions between sleep, diet, and metabolic health, and applied for that. And the rest is history, as they say. Mm -hmm. So I finished that about halfway through last year. Mm -hmm. And now I'm working for a digital health startup, and also I'm still involved in a little bit of research on the side, and do some public speaking now and then too. Right. Yeah, it's it's so true in a sense that. The light cycles they become more and more um, you know prominent in even like nutritional sciences because you know people realize that it's not just what you eat but it's also like when you do it <laughs> that matters and uh, how it affects your entire health. So the 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 kind of field of circadian rhythms and chronobiology is still very young and uh, not a lot of research has been done in it. But maybe like give you a brief overview of like what are circadian rhythms and um, how do they affect our health? Yeah, so circadian rhythms are 
self-generated roughly 24-hour changes in various different biological processes. And we have these rhythms in order to anticipate and adapt to changes in our environments. So if you think about this from an evolutionary perspective, then as organisms, we evolved in the presence of these predictable roughly 24-hour changes in things like light and dark and temperature and also risk of predation and food availability. So in this way, it would have been adaptive for us to have these internal timekeeping mechanisms to help us be active, to acquire food when we were likely to get food, and then to also stay out of the line of sight of any predators too. Mm -hmm. And we actually have the circadian rhythms in every cell in our bodies, and they affect pretty much every aspect of our biology. So for example, our digestion, our immune function, how well our muscles work, how much force they can produce and so on. And I think that over time, our appreciation of the importance of good circadian systems function has increased. And it's now clear based on some experiments that were done on other animals that having a well-functioning circadian system that closely aligns with the 24-hour environment seems to help organisms actually survive and reproduce also. So just as one example of this, there have been some experiments done in mice where they affect the genetic bases of circadian rhythms in these mice such that their internal clocks, their circadian systems, veer more from 24 hours than wild-type mice that haven't had this type of genetic manipulation. Mm. And what you find is that over time, they're less likely to survive and hence pass on their genes too. Right. So in a way there, yeah, like I said, some, some adapt- adaptations that um, help the organism to kind of, you know, co- go through certain processes in their organism, in their body, as to fit with the environment in some shape or form. For instance, like if it's, you know, and as I understand, those circadian rhythms are on, not only apply to the 24-hour period, but also like the annual cycle of the environment, in the sense that there's, you know, winter time uh, for lower metabolic activity, and then there's like summer and autumn where there's more food abundance and so on. Yeah, so there's little evidence of these types of phenological or seasonal changes in humans, but certainly in some animals, those types of rhythms are prominent. And as you suggest, it seems to be the change in the light-dark cycle are what drives these changes and specifically signaling of a hormone named melatonin. And some animals go through these periods of torpor or hibernation where they reduce their energy expenditure dramatically. They fatten up at certain times of year and they breed seasonally too. It Mm. could be that humans once would have demonstrated these types of seasonal changes in their biology. And certainly our circadian systems will respond to changes in the light-dark cycle. But whether things like fertility would fluctuate over the course of the year, independent of things like the holiday period when people have more free time and Mm -hmm. they're they're having a good time isn't very clear to us at the moment. But just to circle back to something, we do have various different types of biological rhythms that occur across different timescales. So these so-called circadian rhythms recur roughly 24 hours or so. Circa means about 
Dian means day, so about 24 hours, but they're not precisely 24 hours if they are taken out of the context of these time cues or zeitgebers, the most prominent time cue being the light-dark cycle, and therefore we need to reset them each day. So if you think about our ancestors, then they principally lived by two clocks, and these were the environmental clock, so changing the light-dark cycle primarily, and also their own biological clocks or their internal clocks. Mm. Now, however, we live in a 24-7 society where we have 24-7 food access. Right. Many people work shifts, probably 15 to 20% of the working population. The world is largely lit by artificial light at night, so perhaps 80% of people worldwide are exposed to significant amounts of artificial light at night. And also we spend about 88% of our time indoors during the day. Right. So what's happened is that over time we now have these very weak time cues and therefore our biological clocks and our circadian system specifically aren't so tight, tightly synchronized with the environmental clock or the 24 hour day. And this social clock that now exists is having a more and more dramatic effect on our lives and that leads to various different negative health consequences. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's so true that um, the natural environment that humans evolved in is completely different uh, from the environment that we live in today and there's so many disruptors mainly from like food and uh, light, light sources. But what are maybe some of the you know, negative side effects of these kinds of disruptors, disruptors and uh, misalignments? Yeah. So I, I could give you a very long answer to this question, so I'll try not to. But we, we can think about different types of disruption and different types of misalignment too. So we can have a sort of internal desynchrony where the different clocks in our bodies and the different circadian rhythms in our bodies are either out of time with each other or ticking at different speeds. We can have environmental misalignment for example, after jet lag, when your circadian system is still synchronized with your origin, but you're now at this destination, which is, let's say, three hours or more different from your origin's time zone. Now, your circadian system is misaligned with the new time zone, and that type of environmental misalignment will lead to things like difficulty sleeping, daytime impairment, probably some gastrointestinal disturbances, and so on. Then there's behavioral misalignment. So, for example, it's common for many people now to eat during their biological night times. Mm. And maybe they wake up to alarm clocks in the morning, so they have to be active during their biological night times too. So that's another form of misalignment. But to move now to the health consequences of some of these different types of disruptions, we can look at a variety of different types of studies. So, for example, there are cross-sectional studies where you just look at a snapshot of people living in the natural world and you ask them to report how they sleep at different times during the week and then also you look at their different health outcomes. And there's a concept that's been popularized by a man named Till Ronenberg in recent years named social jet lag. And social jet lag just describes a difference in mid-sleep timing between work days and non-work days of at least one hour. And perhaps 69% of people 
in Northern Europe at least, but that's probably representative of the industrialized world at large, now experience at least one hour of this social jet lag each week. And we know, for example, that this associates with BMI, which is a proxy of adiposity in overweight and obese people. We know that people who experience more social jet lag tend to have worse blood sugar regulation, perhaps worse blood lipid regulation, higher blood pressure also. And some of this might be because these people are more likely to, for example, drink alcohol in excess to smoke but when you adjust for these different behavioral factors it also seems that this social jet lag has some independent associations with various different health outcomes that's just one example of a cross-sectional association between Mm. a proxy of circadian system disruption and health so if we now think about actual experimental studies where you bring people into a laboratory and you carefully manipulate various different things such as the light dark cycle or food availability we can then start to more clearly determine whether disruption to the circadian system causes some of these deleterious consequences and there are a few different researchers that have studied this in great detail in recent years and foremost among those is a man named frank shear who's at harvard so he published a seminal paper a decade ago and he looked at the consequences of a type of experimental paradigm named forced desynchrony, where basically you impose a light-dark cycle, which is outside the range of entrainment. So because our circadian systems left their own devices take it approximately 24 hours, if you try and synchronize your circadian system with a day that's, I say day loosely in inverted commas, with a day that's dramatically longer or shorter than 20 hours, then it can't synchronize with it. So the clock will keep ticking at its own speed. And what will end up happening is after a few of those different light-dark cycles, you'll now be active and eating during the biological nighttime. Mm. And you'll be trying to sleep and fast when it's your biological daytime. And what he found was that after just three days of this type of experimental circadian system misalignment, otherwise healthy people temporarily became pre-diabetic but they also experienced a variety of different disruptions to their hormonal systems. They had worse blood pressure regulation too. And he's done a series of different experiments in recent years showing that this type of misalignment will also negatively affect things like cardiovascular health and brain function and various other things too. And I I could go on and speak about things like jet lag too, but I don't know if you want to jump in now. Hmm. Yeah, like at the moment let's stay here. <laughs> uh, but uh, is it is it is it because of? I would I would like to know like is it because of more like the decrease in sleep quality or is the uh, the misalignment in the circadian clocks like um, the direct independent variable that causes these uh, problems? So you would absolutely expect sleep quality to be impaired. And that would negatively affect perhaps all of those different things too. But also you can try to control for sleep quality in your analyses. And I know that Frank has done this in some of his analyses and shown that it seems to be that this type of circadian disruption independently negatively affects some of these outcomes too. But I would certainly expect them to be additive. And we know from a huge body of research that disrupting sleep, and you can disrupt it in various different ways, you can fragment it where you just break it up by exposing people to artificial light at night, for example, or you can restrict sleep. So instead of giving somebody perhaps eight hours in bed 
each night. Perhaps you let them go to bed two hours later and wake them up two hours earlier. So their sleep opportunity is only half what it would otherwise be. Mm -hmm. Or you could disturb it with sound, noises, and so on. But all those different studies point to the fact that that type of sleep disruption will also lead to many similar consequences that you get from circadian system disruption. But it does seem to be that these two things have additive negative effects. Mm, right. Yeah, that's that's kind of, kind of goes to show how important these uh, clocks actually are. Uh, but uh, you mentioned uh, like eating and food being an important part as well. So you've recently there's been a, t- a lot of talk about time restricted feeding as well. So how does it differ from uh, circadian rhythms and uh, like what, what what is that? Yeah, so this is the field of chrono nutrition. People like taking chrono and then tacking it onto the front of words as a prefix. So you now hear about, yeah, exactly. How about that? You get chronobesity and chronopharmacology. (laughs) And anyway, chrononutrition is basically the idea, as you touched on at the start, that it's not only what you eat that matters, but when you eat too. And specifically when you eat relative to the timing of your biological clocks. And we could go in various different directions with this, but let's stick with the subject of time-restricted eating. And that can be used interchangeably with time-restricted feeding, but typically because we're people and we don't feed, we are normally refer <laughs> to human right. time-restricted eating and time-restricted Maybe. feeding in other animals. But yeah. the, the principle is, in general, restricting food availability or availability to any calorie-containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each day. And I would make the distinction between that and intermittent fasting. In in my mind, intermittent fasting is periodic use of a longer fast. So Mm. I would say 24 hours or longer. Anyway, time-restricted eating has been studied more and more in recent years, particularly in the last decade or so. And the premise is that if we can align our access to calorie containing items with times at which our biology is best suited to processing those items then we can improve our health and there's been a huge amount of preclinical research on other animals mice specifically and typically male c56 c I forget the specific type of mice, but it's a, it's a black six mouse. <laughs> and black mouse, yeah. C57 black six mouse. And what that has typically shown is that if you take two groups of mice and you give one group access to a high fat chow, and I say high fat loosely again because it's also high in sugar, mm. then that they will experience circadian system disruption and their patterns of eating will spread out such that they consume a greater proportion of their energy intake during their biological night times, the times at which they would normally be sleeping. Mm-hmm. And if you restrict their access to this chow to the daytime, their biological daytime, then what you find is that although they consume an equivalent number of calories, they're protected against many of the negative consequences of Mm. this high fat chow. Mm. So for example, they're protected against the development of obesity, fatty liver disease, 
and various other metabolic abnormalities. So there's been a lot of excitement in response to these preclinical studies. And only in the last few years or so, people started to look at this in the context of human dietary patterns. And many of the first studies on this looked at breakfast skipping. And to summarize those briefly, what they largely found was that if you use time-restricted eating, or if you have people skip breakfast such they consume no calories until at least midday, and you compare that to people who consume at least 700 calories by 11 a.m. each day, then the time-restricted eating will lead people to consume fewer calories each day, but they also burn fewer calories such that overall energy balance isn't different between the two groups. And what they actually found was that if anything, it seems that blood sugar regulation in lean people is worse when they skip breakfast and insulin sensitivity in the afternoon in overweight and obese people is worse when they skip breakfast. Mm -hmm. But there's an important wrinkle in the details here, and that is the timing of the eating period or the caloric period. And just in the last couple of years, there have been three really nice studies that have come out of Pennington. And this has been largely headed up by Eric Ravison and Courtney Peterson. And they did a study last year that looked at men with prediabetes who are in their middle ages. And they went through two five-week periods. And in one of these periods, they had access to food over a 12-hour period each day. And in the other condition, they had access to the exact same composition of food, so the same number of calories, the same macronutrients, but during a period of only six hours each day. Mm -hmm. And this six-hour period finished by three in the afternoon. So this was a form of early time-restricted eating. They effectively skipped dinner. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that during that time, the early... time-restricted eating condition led to a substantial drop in morning blood pressure, about 10 millimeters of mercury, which is massive. That's comparable Mm. to the effects of antihypertensive drugs, Mm -hmm. but also improved blood sugar regulation, lower measures of oxidative stress, and better appetite regulation. And then this year, they've just published recently two more studies that looked at a much shorter intervention. And in this instance, they used the same type of comparison. So this early time restricted eating to a 12 hour caloric period each day, but they only looked at four day long interventions. And what they found was that appetite regulation was again better. And this is perhaps counterintuitive, but during the early time restricted eating condition, people were actually less hungry in the evening their mean blood sugar levels over 24 hours each day were lower in the early time-restricted eating condition. The early time-restricted eating condition also led to greater ketogenesis in the morning. And they also looked at the expression of some genes that are thought to be involved in the aging process. So for example, CTM1 and mTOR, and and they had mixed findings when it came to gene expression specifically. But broadly speaking, what I would say is that the takeaway for people who are interested in this is that if you implement this type of time-restricted eating approach, then it would be preferable to have it relatively early in your biological day. So you're better off skipping dinner 
than you are skipping breakfast. And if that's not practical for you, then one thing that you can consider doing is just having a substantially smaller dinner. And I'm sorry, this is a long answer, but just to touch on two very relevant studies here, there's been one study that looked at the effects of assigning more calories to dinner relative to breakfast. And what they found was that when they consumed more calories at dinner, they had lower overnight heart rate variability, which suggests that the autonomic nervous system is perhaps functioning a bit worse. And I would expect that to associate with poorer sleep quality too. So that's just a short-term study. But also there have been some much longer-term studies that have looked at the effects of distributing calories during three meals each day differently. And there was one particularly nice study that was published about six years ago. And in this study, there were two groups of women and there was a 12-hour weight loss intervention. So these two groups consumed, again, the same number of calories each day and the same macronutrient composition in their diets. But in one condition, they had 50% of their calories at breakfast. And in one condition, they had 50% of their calories at dinner. And in the big breakfast condition, the women lost more than twice as much body weight, more than twice as many inches off their waist. They had better blood sugar regulation and better blood lipid regulation too. So all of this evidence, to me, really supports the importance of assigning more of your energy intake relatively early in your day and we could discuss this, but there are also many mechanistic reasons to think that this likely makes sense. But if the people who are listening to this are currently used to having very big dinners or using time-restricted eating, but maybe starting at midday and finishing at 8 p.m. or relatively late, then if they can start to shift this earlier in the day, then I think that they probably stand to benefit. And just to add one more thing, if you skip dinner, and compare that to skipping breakfast, then it's likely that your food choices will differ too. Mm. So not many people consume wine at breakfast and not many people <laughs> consume cereal at dinner. Right. Although, to be honest, if you're going to consume wine, the best time of day probably is brunch. <laughs> but if we, if we park that, then the implication is that my guess is that people will consume higher quality diets if they skip dinner too because they'll be they'll be doing away with the wine and perhaps the snacks in front of the tv so yeah well absolutely you know and and willpower as a construct is something that people will debate whether it exists (laughs) but certainly it seems that if ego depletion does exist then it might wane over the course of the day the more decisions that we make the Mm. more difficult it is to make good decisions and therefore if if we can shift some things earlier in the day then then maybe that will help us out in that respect Mm -hmm. yeah like um, i've seen the same research that shows that early time received eating is like much more preferential like healthier in general when you compare it to like the standard three meals a day when you're eating like over the over the span of 12 hours or so so uh, of course i would say that uh, that form of time restricted eating is still better because you're conf- actually confining the uh, time period within a certain time frame as opposed to like the regular way of when you're not actually going into a real fast state. And there are actually some other studies that compare early time restricted eating versus somewhat later time restricted eating with the same amount of, like with the same, um, with the same hours during the eating window for like six hours. The one group started at morning, like 
uh, 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. and the other one started at noon from 12 p.m. until 6 p.m. and there were no differences and they were actually they were actually done on the same subjects like first two weeks they ate early times eating then for two weeks they did like the regular eating of three meals a day with no time restrictions and the last three weeks they did the later time of eating and there were no differences um between early and late time of eating between all uh, across all health markers like cholesterol and blood sugar and so on but there was a difference during the periods where they weren't doing any time of eating so i, th I think that <laughs> the most important part is still like the confinement of the eating window within a certain time frame as to allow your body to go into the fastest state and uh, where you're like uh, you know not spiking insulin several times uh, throughout the day uh, but yeah i do agree that uh, you know eating at night time is definitely not something <laughs> that you should do and there is probably like a sm some sort of a buffer zone where you want to stop eating before going to bed like a few hours but in general there's not going to be like a huge difference as long as you have like some some you know maybe i would say like optimally four hours before going to bed that's like the last time that you should eat something and uh, in most people who are like healthy they're exercising they're eating a clean diet then for them that's not going to be like a huge issue and uh, and you can even you can, you can even say that you know you're in more insulin sensitive during the daytime and that's why it's better to eat like a huge breakfast because you're more insulin sensitive but at night time, but that would apply only to like sedentary conditions where you're not doing anything it's because you can at night time or later in the day, you can still uh, promote insulin mediated glucose disposal with things like, you know, exercise and, uh, and you don't even need insulin, although you're like, despite the fact that you're less insulin sensitive at the evening, just because you're stimulating your uh, GLUT4 receptors with, with exercise. So it, it's def definitely very context dependent. And most people who are definitely like not doing anything for their health, then they would see great improvements in their, uh, in their health if they stick to early time of eating. But most people, like I would suggest that there's not going to be like a huge significant difference if they eat slightly later as well. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> Generally speaking, I, I agree with all of that. There, there are lots of different things that I could pick up on there, but the overarching theme is that it depends on what you're optimizing for. Right. And if, for example, you're a knowledge worker and the most important thing to you is to be sharp at work in the morning and you feel better fasting in the morning, you feel like your brain functions better. And there haven't been good studies that have looked at this yet, but many people report that anecdotally, then I would say go ahead and, and skip breakfast. Whereas if, for example, you're an athlete and you're a strength and power athlete, you want to optimize your strength and power performance and you know that strength and power typically peak in the late biological afternoon, so for many of us that would be about 5 p.m., then it probably makes sense to place your exercise training around those times. And if that's the case, then you want to optimize your recovery from the exercise training. So it's therefore going to make sense to consume many of your calories around that training bout because, as you mentioned, non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake is going to be increased by that exercise training. Mm -hmm. So that's really important for people to understand. And I do think, of course, that there will be benefits to various different things that just depend on this type of regular caloric period, whether that's early in the day or late in the day. So, for example, I suspect that people who have digestive issues stand to benefit a lot from time-restricted eating, whether that's relatively early in the day or late in the day. 
And giving that type of consistent time cue to the different clocks in your circadian system likely is a good thing. And many of these studies, of course, are short-term interventions. So it could be that we find out in due course that during much longer interventions, some of the adaptations that occur in the skating system in response to these different caloric period timings, so for example, consuming that caloric period early in the day versus late in the day, are relatively moot. They get washed out over time. Mm -hmm. But we, we don't really know that for sure. But as you say, what we need are some good studies that, or as you imply, what we need are some good studies that compare people consuming their caloric periods at different times of day in free living mm. and then starting to track their health outcomes over time. Because while this type of very tight controlled experiment is useful to getting at mechanisms, and I, I do still think that it, it is important for people, if possible, to consume their caloric periods early in the day, mm -hmm. but we need those types of free living studies so that we can mm -hmm. better tease apart the pros and cons of these different types of patterns. And one more thing to touch on, which you mentioned is the importance of consistency. Mm. And this I think is often overlooked by people, but just being consistent in your meal times from one day to the next seems to independently be good for metabolic health. So mm. for example, there's been a lot of research by scientist at the University of Nottingham, a man named Ian McDonald. And what that's shown to pick one study is that if you, if you take healthy young women and you split them into two groups, and in one group they consume six meals each day at the same times of day, and in the other condition they consume three to nine meals, so on average they consume six meals each day, but that number is varying, then the consistent six meal a day condition leads to better blood sugar regulation, better appetite regulation, and greater diet-induced thermogenesis too, so they burn more calories mm. after consuming their meals. So consistency is key too. And just to throw in one more thing, it's, <laughs> it's of course fine if you veer from these patterns every now and then. It's not a problem. And in some instances, with things like fasting, if you're a healthy person, it might actually be beneficial to punctuate these periods of consistency mm -hmm. with some of these hormetic stresses like fasting. But Truth be told, while many of the people listening to this likely are very healthy, many people aren't so healthy. And it's often the people who are already burning the candle at both ends <laughs> who are disposed to trying things like fasting. Maybe they are CEO types <laughs> and they spend their free time hammering out miles on their bikes at high intensities. And then they right. think, oh, I'll, I'll throw in a 48-hour fast now and then too. And that's exactly the type of person who shouldn't be doing that. Sure. Whereas the, the very obese person who can go months without consuming any calories will surely benefit a lot from sure. longer-term fasting. So right. sorry, sorry for the digression, but <laughs> broadly speaking, we're, we're, we're absolutely in agreement. It depends on what you're optimizing for. But being consistent is key. If you're opti optimizing for metabolic health, I, I do think at the moment, based on the weight of the evidence, that it does make sense to consume the majority of calories early in your day. Mm. But if, for example, that's not practical for your lifestyle, or if you feel like you're sharper in the morning by skipping breakfast, then go ahead. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, it's also like the same example, like a ketogenic diet has been shown to be very good for epilepsy and cancer, etc., but it's not necessary for people who don't really have cancer or you know that sort of disease, you know. And uh, it doesn't mean that they couldn't benefit from it 
by doing, you know, a ketogenic diet, but it doesn't also mean that they have to do it. You know, <laughs> so the same probably has applies to here as well. So if if something is working for you, then uh, keep at it and keep doing it because it's you know showing the results. But it's if something isn't working or you're you know hit the plateau, then you probably need to adjust it. And if you're like doing some form of fasting, then maybe changing the time of when you eat would be the place to go as long as you have like all the other things dialed in as well, like. Uh, actual, actual the macronutrients and uh, exercise and so on. So, it's mm-hmm. it's 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 like based on the individual and uh, what's their sticking point. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I hope that I'm not repeating myself because I know that <laughs> we, we we spoke in Toronto at the back end of last year too. But time restricted eating, of course, isn't for everyone. Right. And if you, for example, have very high energy intake requirements, if you're a very big person, you're a competitor competitive athlete who just cranks through lots of calories then a six hour caloric period each day is probably not for you and one other thing to mention is that these studies that have for example compared a six hour caloric period to a 12 hour caloric period are interesting in that the 12 hour caloric period is still a shorter caloric period than most people (laughs) go through each day so if for example you look at adults in california who have been studied a couple of years ago, then they typically spread out their calories over upwards of 15 hours each day. And there are quite large cross-sectional studies of people in Europe as well that imply that's the case over here too. Mm -hmm. So 12 hours for many people is actually time restriction. And I know that for me personally, I I consume my calories within about a 12 hour period each day, but I'm not trying to, lose fat mass or anything and if anything i i tend to not eat as much as i need and when i start to compress my caloric period to a shorter period than 12 hours i often just end up wasting away (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's a good point and yeah most people uh, in the let's say average household they're actually eating you know from from the moment they wake up all the way until they go to bed so they're never actually going into a fasted state and they're not really reaping the benefits of the time restriction eat, eating versus neither, neither like from the fasting and yes i think it's somewhat of a real pretty easy fix for seeing some massive re- re- improvements in your health if you just even if you just confine your eating window within like 12 hours that's like already a huge improvement from uh, what most people are already doing yeah people don't need to jump straight from a 15 hour caloric period <laughs> to a six one yeah. <laughs> you can do this in a stepwise way in the same way that if you're currently consuming six cups of coffee, you don't have to go cold turkey and have the most terrible headaches of your life for the next few days. So <laughs> think about how you can best implement this in the context of your own life. And right. probably one important thing for people to consider is how they can get other people in their lives on board too. So if you have a family, for instance, and right now you're having a very big dinner because most people consume the majority of their calories at dinner and have relatively small breakfasts and moderate sized lunches, then discuss this with your family and, and work out whether it's possible for you guys to start changing your ways. And I know that for me and for many people who are very interested in health, who I know well, having a smaller dinner has really benefited us in recent times. Mm-hmm. And I actually had some blood tests back about three days ago and I was, I was really struck by the results. They were comfortably the best that they've been 
in my life and I haven't changed that much recently. It's just that over time I've slept better and the only dietary changes that I've made recently are in the time of my caloric period. So that could be anomalous and unrelated, but it is interesting nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Sleep is probably one of the biggest thing that actually, you know, pushes everything moving in the right direction <laughs> when it comes to like metabolic health as well. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, I wanted to, you know, we talked about the time of the eating aspect quite a long now, but uh, what about sleep? What are maybe the next to food? What are the other biggest disruptors of sleep and uh, sleep quality? Yeah, this is really person specific. And I always struggle with answering these questions because <laughs> you, can, you can give generic recommendations, but the reality is that we know of at least a hundred different types of sleep weight disorders and most people will experience one of these at some point in their lives so about 30 percent of adults at a given time for example will experience short-term insomnia and that's often a product of things like work-related stress so we know that sleep difficulties are generally most pervasive at the start of the working week mm -hmm. But also it can be things like exposure to artificial light at night. So people who perhaps don't have blackout blinds in their rooms or have lots of sources of artificial light in their bedrooms, such as alarm clocks that emit blue light, will likely experience sleep disruption in response to those. For other people, maybe they live by busy streets and noise is a problem for them. So a way around that would be to use earplugs potentially or a white noise machine or something like a fan. But then there are also some things that are intrinsic to our bodies that can disrupt sleep too. So for example, obstructive sleep apnea is relatively common. And that's this condition in which the upper, upper airway intermittently collapses, mm -hmm. temporarily depriving the person of oxygen. And that leads to a variety of different negative downstream consequences. So for example, increased activation of the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. and those consequences seem to independently increase the likelihood of developing certain metabolic diseases such as diabetes. And for those people, the solution to that would probably be something like continuous positive airway pressure. So if you think that you might have a sleep disorder, then it is important that you go to a qualified sleep medicine specialist about your problems and seek additional guidance. But with that said, I can rattle off a few different things that people commonly are exposed to and that commonly disrupt people's sleep, if you like. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So if we go through this chronologically, then during the daytime, stimulants are a problem for lots of people. Mm. And people differ substantially in how efficiently they detoxify different stimulants. So for example, while on average, the half-life of caffeine seems to be roughly six hours, there are some people for whom it will be more than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And for those people, they're probably best to not consume any at all. But if they do consume any, then it's really important they consume as early in the day as possible and consume as little of it as possible. But as a rule of thumb for most people, I generally suggest capping caffeine intake at about two milligrams of caffeine per kilogram body mass per day. And there's a website named Caffeine Informer which people can use to approximate how much caffeine they're consuming. But then there are other stimulants too. 
and recreational use of various different so-called smart drugs now is quite common especially in certain populations students for example so in general try to restrict your use of stimulants early in your day when possible then there is food which we've discussed at length so i won't dwell on that but also within food there's alcohol and if you consume alcohol relatively late in the day then people tend to fall asleep faster mm. and they also enter the deeper stage of sleep sooner which superficially to some people sounds like a really good thing but actually what happens is that overnight as the liver detoxifies the alcohol sleep tends to fragment or break up and sleep is rest less restorative as a result and the next day people are likely to be impaired and alcohol also is a potent disruptor of the circadian system at various different levels so for example the gut but also behavioral rhythms and a few other things too so alcohol i would suggest that people cap their intake at two units per day those are the government guidelines over here that's just plucked out of thin air but i think that is a good starting point for many people and if you can cut your alcohol intake by four hours before bedtime then that's probably ideal but again like caffeine people differ a lot in terms of how well they get rid of alcohol in the system with respect to exercise if you're doing vigorous intensity physical activity then i generally suggest that people finish it by about four hours before planned bedtime and an important consideration is that when people do this type of physical activity they're often also exposed to bright lights and lots of noise maybe they're in the gym slinging some iron and if you do that an hour before bedtime then surprise surprise you yeah. probably will not sleep that well that night if you're doing more moderate exercise like some moderate intensity cycling then finishing that by two hours before bedtime is probably fine and then in this two hours or so before bedtime it's important to transition to a more relaxed state and i think there are some things that have become more and more problematic in recent years when it comes to sleep quality and one of these is use of devices mm. that could be your laptop so it could be working late at night but mobile phones specifically i think are a problem and interestingly there's been lots of work looking at things like patterns of twitter activity <laughs> and how they associate with sleep and some related different health outcomes for example obesity and also some performance outcomes so there have been studies that have looked at things like basketball players nocturnal twitter activity patterns and next day performance <laughs> and, and basically using social media during that time around which we should be asleep is a bad thing right so think about whether it's possible for you to first turn off your device entirely during the sleep period second get it out of your bedroom and for me i know this has changed that i've become much more meticulous about in the last few years i now really try to be diligent about turning my phone off at least half an hour before bedtime and it stays off in a different room until at least 15 minutes after i wake up the next day mm. which is by no means heroic but it's definitely been a good thing for my sleep and that brings up another important point which is this idea of stimulus control of behavior if we think about social activity social media activity sorry then let's say for example that your phone pings and you've just got an instagram notification 
in response to that over time, many people become conditioned to pick up their phones so they check out, oh, I've just got a new like or a new follower or whatever it might be. Yeah. And that type of behavior gets conditioned over time. The problem is that many people now use their bedrooms for various different activities, not just sex and sleep. And what can happen is that their brain starts to associate their bed with being a place of waking activities. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a really common problem in different types of insomnia. So what those people need to do is apply this principle of stimulus control and save the bedroom for sex yeah. and sleep only. And, and also you just want your bedroom to be a comfortable environment too in general. Anyway, during this two hour or so period before bedtime, you want to systematically reduce your exposure to light and blue light specifically. So you might, for example, dim the lights. You might download various different apps for your devices, F.Lux for your computer, or you might use night shift mode if you have an iPhone or Twilight if you have an Android phone. Mm. You might use blue blocking glasses if you're happy to use them. And during this time also, there are other different things that people can try to help them fall asleep faster. One of these is having a hot shower, about 40 degrees Celsius, for 10 minutes or so about an hour before bedtime will help people fall asleep faster and also feel like they slept a little bit better too and the reason is that that will raise the temperature of the skin which perhaps counterintuitively then helps them radiate heat out from their core and the temperature of your body drops by just under one degree celsius overnight and that drop in brain temperature specifically is important to sleep quality so that's crucial as well and then Think about different things that you find relaxing at this time. So in the last half hour or so before bedtime, you don't want to do anything that's too stimulating. You wouldn't, for example, want to check the news. But if you also find a novel that you're reading really engaging and it gets your mind racing, or maybe you're reading a business book or a book about health or something like that that you find riveting, then it's probably not the right time to do that type of thing. You're better off scheduling it early in your day. And a simple thing that people can do is listen to music that they find relaxing. And actually this has been shown also to help people fall asleep faster. And then one thing that I want to touch on is what people should do if they wake up during the night, because this is actually really important. Mm, So one circumstance would be you wake up because you need to go to the toilet. If that's the case, then first you always want to make sure that your way to the bathroom is unimpeded. So you don't trip up and (laughs) hang your head. Don't do that. But also, you want to expose yourself to as little light as possible at a time. And let's say that you have some blue blocking glasses and you have to turn the lights on or whatever, then use the blue blocking glasses at that time. Otherwise, you can just walk around squinting. <laughs> and if you otherwise wake up and you find you can't go back to sleep, and this is very common in a form of insomnia named sleep maintenance insomnia, people who can fall asleep fine but can't stay asleep, then there are some different strategies that you can try. So first, if you do actually have this type of sleep maintenance insomnia where you you keep waking up during the night for extended periods and you're wondering why you can't get back to sleep, then apply something like all the 15-minute rule. It's It's not my idea, of course, but the idea is that if you're awake for at least 15 minutes, then you should leave your bedroom. You should go somewhere elsewhere in your living environment and do something relaxing, which is kind of boring, Again, if it's too stimulating, it's not going to help you sleep. So that, that might be doing something like a crossword puzzle 
in very dim lighting, or it might be reading a novel that you think is fun and very dim lighting, or it could be meditating quietly. So that's a useful strategy for people. Another important one for people who have a racing mind is to keep a notebook handy by the bedside. And lots of people will have various different things on their mind about what's coming up in the next days. And if this is the case, then in the couple of hours before bed, they should make a to-do list. They can also do things like diarize things that they're grateful for that day, things that have gone well. And if they keep that by the bedside, then if they wake up during the night thinking, oh, damn, I've got to get that done, they can just jot that down in the diary then. And then I'll, I'll mention just a couple more things. So one is if you wake up and you experience bodily discomfort, then progressive muscle relaxation can be useful which is basically just systematically scanning through your body, tensing individual muscles, and then relaxing them. So you might start with your toes, for example, and slowly work your way all the way up to your forehead. That can be very useful for those people. And if you're somebody who finds that you become very attuned to certain signals in your body, so maybe you feel like your heartbeat is pounding at night, or maybe you're very aware of your breathing, then you can try visualization. And you don't want to just save this for the nighttime. You want to practice this during daytime so that you become very good at being able to transition into a, an imaginary environment that you find relaxing. So maybe that's mm. you lying on the beach and you can feel the warmth of the sun on your skin and so on. So that's also handy. One more, just, just because I'm on this massive monologue. <laughs> if, if you are lying in bed and thinking, why can't I sleep? Why can't I sleep? Why can't I sleep? You can just work on those thoughts. So one, one way is to just block those thoughts by just repeating a really boring word over and over again, and you'll probably bore yourself to sleep. Another is something called paradoxical intention, which is basically making fun of yourself. So for example, people who have anxiety might dramatically catastrophize about how terrible everything is. <laughs> and if they do so to the nth degree, then it just becomes funny. So if you're somebody who can't fall asleep, then see if you can challenge yourself to stay awake and think about how terrible the next day is going to be as a result. And you'll quickly realize that your beliefs are quite dysfunctional. And paradoxical intention applying that strategy has been shown to help people fall asleep faster too. So mm. those are lots of different things that people can try. Well, yeah, that's a, that's an amazing rundown. And uh, yeah, like I totally agree that it, most of the time people are just somewhat unable to wind down or to kind of transition over from the active periods of the day into the uh, rela relaxed downtime, uh, whether that be because of like psychological stress or uh, physiological stimuli coming from their TV screen and blue light. So probably the worst thing would be to have a TV in your, in your bedroom and watch it without any blue blockers and then Don't wondering, <laughs> and then wondering <laughs> why you're not able to fall asleep. So <laughs> mm. It's quite common. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty common. Well, um, it's been great talking with you and uh, probably you have a bunch of other uh, maybe resources people can uh, delve into if they want to optimize it. So uh, if you have any links or websites you want to direct people to, then uh, be my guest. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So I don't have my own personal website at the moment or anything like that. And I'm also not currently working for a company that has a website because I'm just working for an early stage startup. So hopefully that will exist as an actual body quite soon. But for the time being, I used to work for a company named humanos.me and people can go 
over there and check it out if they want to read the blog. I've written many blogs about things like sleep and circadian biology over the last couple of years there. And also have hosted the podcast occasionally. I'm currently doing a little bit of work with Nourish Balance Thrive, which some people might have heard of. And they have a high-end coaching program for people who have complex health problems that they feel haven't been well addressed by the conventional medical establishment. But likewise, they, they work with lots of elite athletes in different sports too. So if you're looking for something to take your performance to the next level, then you can check out Nourish Balance Thrive. But then otherwise, to just keep abreast of what I'm up to myself, I am on social media. I try not to tweet late at night, <laughs> but my handle is at GDM Potter on Instagram and Twitter. LinkedIn extension is the same, I believe. And people can always reach out to me on any of those channels too. Awesome. Awesome. We'll leave all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, where can, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? This is such a banal, <laughs> obvious, almost cliched answer in 2019. But meditation? I started meditating in 2014 and have had pretty much a daily practice since then. But I feel that it's strongly benefited many different aspects of my life, particularly my psychological health. Mm. But I, I feel sharper mentally. It definitely improved my sleep. We didn't speak about that today, but there is good evidence that meditation helps with various different sleep difficulties, particularly those related to things like anxiety and depression. And I just feel that I'm better able to make good decisions on the fly and much better at self-regulating myself, which I think is a very important skill in our modern environments because we're always being bombarded by different stimuli. And I feel that how we assign our attention is perhaps the most important thing that we do on an ongoing basis. Yeah. So if, if you want to think about how you can pay more attention to the important stuff and less attention to the less important stuff. And also just become more aware of how you're spending your time and how you are acting in the world. Then adopting a regular meditation practice is a good thing. And the issue with meditation is that many people just treat it as some sort of stress ball now. And I, I think that the reality is that people stand to benefit much more if they understand it's, true nature which sounds quite woo but there are some good resources out there for people there's the oxford mindfulness center that people can go and check out i really like sam harris's waking up app mm. i currently use that and find that very helpful and there are lots of different retreats and there are many retreats in different countries now too because it's had this boom in popularity in recent years so i think i picked meditation Mm, yeah that's a pretty popular one and a good one as well it because does. <laughs> it does it does uh help you to direct your attention and pay more attention to um, the most important parts or or the most important things that you need to do and probably it will po it will direct your attention to paying more attention to your sleep quality <laughs> and uh yeah. all, all, all the other uh related things absolutely hope so Yeah. Well, uh, it's been great talking with you and uh, I'll see you probably in uh, London in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you in about three weeks time. 
yeah, it sounds it's gonna be a pretty good event. Uh, but yeah, thanks for coming to the show, and we'll definitely do it sometime in the future again. Awesome, thanks, Ian. All right, that's it for this episode. Share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms as well. You can also check out the show notes for all the topics that we discussed in here. But other than that, thanks for listening to this episode. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next one. Stay empowered.